I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. It's Martin Shipton, and today I'm with Mark Cotter, QC, who is a barrister who's originally from Cardiff and who now operates in uh, various locations, including London, Birmingham, and in Wales sometimes. Mark, give me some details of your background, because you are from Cardiff originally, aren't you? That's right, yes. My my family roots are from Cardiff. My uh, parents are from Cardiff. My grandparents on both sides are from Cardiff as well. My paternal grandfather was a was a coal trimmer down the docks, and my grandfather was a, had a coal round and ended up his life as a as a night watchman in Cardiff. And both of my parents, as I say, from Cardiff as well. They left school without any qualifications but did reasonably well for themselves and were able to buy a property and I was brought up and went to state school in Cardiff. Because that's not exactly the stereotype that people have of lawyers, is it? They think that they went to a a posh uh, boarding school and uh, ended up at Oxbridge or something. It's what they refer to as a non-traditional background, whatever that actually means, but that's what they refer to it as, as a non-traditional background because there's a perception that most lawyers must have had private educations or must come from slightly well-to-do backgrounds and perhaps have got an Oxbridge degree or something like that. But there are increasing numbers of lawyers, and it's been increasing for many years now, who come from non-traditional backgrounds. And and the hope is that that will continue and that more and more people from non-traditional backgrounds will come to the law and practice in the law and hopefully become lawyers and in due course become judges. So how old were you when you started taking an interest in the law? Well, my father was a policeman. And so I think that probably influenced me from a reasonably young age uh, in terms of my interest in the law and in particular interest in the criminal law. When I was at school, my, my academic performance was always stronger in the arts than it was in the sciences, and so that steered my selection of choices of subject for A-level, and ultimately that's what directed me in towards doing a law degree rather than anything else. So it's something that I've had around me for, for, from childhood, really. Where did you do your law degree? I went to Kingston Polytechnic, as it then was. It was Kingston Polytechnic when I started in 89, and it was Kingston University when I graduated in 92. So I was in that transitional period. I was the, I was the last generation to do O-levels. I was the last generation to see Polytechnics, but yeah, it was in London. And what was it that made you go the barrister at Rowan's listing? To be honest, when I started my law degree, the plan was to become a solicitor. But three years later, I realised that I'd done absolutely nothing Uh, in reality to plan towards becoming a solicitor. I'd done no work experience over the summer in solicitor's offices and I I had to own up to myself that really that wasn't what I wanted to do. I'd done some debating um, at university or polytechnic then university and a friend of mine who was doing the degree with me who was from a a council estate background in Birmingham told me that he was going to apply to bar school and try and be a barrister and I thought well if he's going to try and do it, why can't I? And that's that's really sort of what started it. And so I made an application to bar school, but first time round I didn't get in. And uh, you specialise in criminal law? I do, yes. Um, that's that's the direction I went in when I started. The, the story is that I, I didn't get into bar school the first time round. So I came back to Cardiff for a year and did a master's degree at Cardiff University and lived at home. That was the only way I could afford to do it. And then I applied to go to bar school again there was a waiting list system because bar school was heavily oversubscribed. There was only one place that you could do it, and that was Inns of Court School of Law in London. I didn't get in second time round, and I'd resigned myself to the fact that the dream was over and I was going to be staying in Cardiff and looking for a job. 
And then on a Friday, a phone call to the house. My sister answered the phone, came in, said, Dad, it's for you. I want to speak to Mr Cotter. So my dad went to the phone. He came back and said, Mark, it's for you. I went to the phone and it was bar school. And they said, somebody's just dropped out. The course starts on Monday. Your name is the next number on the list. Do you want to go to bar school? And so that's how I got in. We packed the car, drove up to London over the weekend. I slept on a mate's floor for the first couple of weeks on a mattress in a, in a flat in a council estate that he was subletting and started the course and during the course of that year you do different topics you you study different subjects and the criminal law was what grabbed me and so eventually when I got pupillage I did different types of law in the early years as well but it was always criminal law that I I fell in love with and seemed seemed to be good at so that's what I stayed with. Do you prefer prosecuting or defence? I've been asked that question lots of times over the years and For the first seven or eight years of my career, I only defended. I was in a chambers that did not prosecute, so I only did defence work. Then around about 2001, I moved chambers to a chambers that did both sides, and I started to prosecute. And I think that although I thoroughly enjoy the variety of doing both, I think if somebody said to me tomorrow, you could only do one or the other, which would it be? I think I would probably elect to go down the defence route. But that's not to say that I haven't thoroughly enjoyed the cases that I prosecute, and I anticipate that in future when I prosecute, I'll enjoy doing those cases as well. But I think fundamentally I'm, I'm more defence. Of course, uh, in Wales, over the last 20 or so years, um, largely you know, around 20 years ago, or even more than that, but the ramifications are still around today. There are quite a number of cases that have resulted in miscarriages of justice. Do you think that there was something endemic to police in South Wales which led to such cases, or or were they just the results of uh, coincidence? Or uh, and has since there been um, a sort of change in the attitude of the police to make sure that miscarriages of justice don't take place? I I certainly don't think there was anything endemic. I I was obviously, in terms of, I know the the main cases that you're talking talking about, and anybody in Wales would immediately be able to identify them, I'm sure. And I was very young at the time that those cases were taking place. But I'm not sure that there was anything endemic, because if you look around the country, and if you look in the law reports, you'll see that there were miscarriages of justice that had taken place in all different parts of the country, and for all sorts of different reasons. There were, of course, situations when there were problems with the police, and I'm thinking principally in terms of of West Midlands. There was the famous problems that occurred with the West Midlands police. But having said that, if you look at the instances of situations where there have been miscarriages of justice, first of all, it's important to remember that we know that those miscarriages of justice have occurred because they have been corrected, which is a positive, albeit that sometimes it's taken a long time to correct them, which of course, is, 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 is no great um, help to those who are the victims of the miscarriages of justice. But secondly, if you consider the number of cases where that's been identified, set against the huge, huge, huge volume of cases that go through the system, I think we can sit back and say with, with some confidence that those situations arise incredibly rarely. But because they are so... Um, important to the public because of the public interest. They are very, very widely reported and understandably so. But sometimes it might give the impression that perhaps they're more common than they are, but they are a tiny, tiny, tiny minority of cases. So I'm not sure that there was anything endemic taking place, but I think we can take some comfort from the fact that when those things have occurred, 
they have been corrected. Of course, some the counter-argument to that might be, well, there may be cases where miscarriages of justice have occurred that we don't know about because they haven't been corrected. But I do believe we have a, we have a very, very good system um, for vigorously reviewing where necessary convictions to ensure that they are safe. How often do you find yourself in a position where you're defending somebody that you suspect is actually guilty? Well, strange though it may seem, um, my job is really not to make a personal assessment as to whether the person is guilty or not. But can I just say this before I answer that question? And it comes back really to, to, to what we were just discussing in terms of the volume of cases. Lawyers are always asked, how do you defend somebody if you know that they're guilty? We should all bear in mind that the absolute overwhelming majority of cases, the overwhelming majority of cases that come through the criminal justice system or the criminal court system are disposed of by way of guilty pleas. Absolute overwhelming majority. It is a very, very small minority of cases that go to trial. And in those cases, they are going to trial because the defendant is saying, either I didn't do it, or I did do it, but I have a defence to it. I, I, did, I did inflict this injury, but I was acting in self-defence, for example. And in a case like that, there's an issue that has to be considered by a jury. And it's not really my job to make an assessment as to whether the defendant is telling me the truth or not telling me the truth when they say, I did it in self-defence. My job is to listen objectively and dispassionately to what my client is telling me, to accept my instructions as being the truth, and then to present the case to the court and let the jury decide whether they accept it or not. So we kind of, in a sense, through experience, train ourselves just to not engage with that, that subject. We detach ourselves from it and we just listen to what our instructions are and then present those instructions to the court as best we can. So I, I just don't think about it. Now, I'm not going to ask you to speak about um, a particular case that you've been involved in because that would be inappropriate, but just for the benefit of people listening who would be aware of uh, the case concerned because there was a lot of publicity, you were defending one of the former members of the, uh, the band uh, JLS on a rape charge, and he was acquitted. Now, I know that you've got concerns about the way in which currently and in the future allegations of sexual crime can be uh, dealt with. I know that one of the issues that you're very preoccupied about is the surveillance uh, issue. Can tell us about that? One of the problems that the criminal justice system and investigators have been grappling with for some years now is, is mobile telephones. There have been a number of cases, not the case that I was involved in, but there have been a number of cases that have received publicity because of issues that have arisen in relation to mobile telephones. And what the problem that has arisen is that we are all now carrying around smartphones that have enormous memory capacities, and they store a huge amount of data in, in relation to our day-to-day -day life. If you had a, a mobile telephone and a Fitbit, and you had Apple Pay activated on your phone, for example, and that phone was, was analysed by a forensic analysis company... You can see what time you went to sleep, you can see when you woke up in the night, you can see what time you got up, you can see what telephone calls you were making when you were making. The, the, the telephone data held by the companies that provide the telephone services can, in some instances, broadly locate where you were when you were making phone calls or sending text messages. Your photographs that you take are there, what you've been buying, where you've been buying it, how you've been buying it. 
what internet sites you've been on, what you've been searching for, what search terms, and so on and so on and so on. And these mobile telephones that we have in conjunction with other applications that we use really are acting as a, as a, as a method of, of self-surveillance. And so when an investigator is investigating uh, a case and there's the potential for relevant material being on a mobile telephone, if the phone is examined, the phone reports that can be generated um, from a mobile telephone, bearing in mind that most of the stuff that you've deleted off your phone is capable of being recovered as well, they run to thousands and tens of thousands and sometimes hundreds of thousands of pages. And in order to ensure fairness to everybody in the system, one of the problems that the police are grappling with is how do you review quantities of material of, on that scale to ensure that fairness is achieved to everybody involved in the process. And it's a huge challenge. You can't have officers sitting down and reading hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pages of material because they wouldn't be able to do anything else. And so grappling with this issue um, is something that's a big challenge for the system to ensure that any material there that might help the defence is available to the defence, any material there that's, that might help the prosecution is available to the prosecution. And we're seeing in the system uh, an increasing number of people who are what's called released under investigation, where they wait for long periods of time for their cases to be investigated because of the issues surrounding these devices that we all now carry around with us. Do you see any ethical problems in this whole idea of uh, keeping records of uh, every aspect of somebody's life? I know there are those campaigners who would say, this is all totally wrong and uh, we deserve our privacy and it's totally wrong that... Um, outside forces, whether they be commercial or, or otherwise, should be able to have access to that kind of information? Well, th this is another problem, because if a mobile telephone is seized and interrogated, which is the phrase that's used to describe the, the obtaining of the information from the phone, if it's interrogated, it doesn't just reveal information about the person who owns that phone, but increasingly, in, in, in the way these applications work, it reveals information about a whole plethora of third parties um, and if there is material there that needs to be used within the within the proceedings the question is well how do you guard how do you guard the privacy of the third parties whose material is on the phone because of the way applications work whatsapp for example or, or whatsapp groups people sharing photographs or sharing messages and so on and often as a result of this the prosecution if they're in possession of a telephone are reluctant to hand over the entire contents of the phone to the defence and say, well, have a look in that and see if there's anything there that helps you and you, you use it if you want to. Because in so doing, they're handing over a whole swathe of potentially confidential information. So that's also another reason why they need to, to look at the phone and try and work out, well, how can we get to the defence, if there's material that helps the defence, how can we get it to the defence in a way that doesn't involve handing over anything that may impinge the, the, the privacy of third parties? It's another big issue. And uh, I mean, it's hellishly difficult, isn't it? Because the amount of time involved in trawling through all the material is massive and there just isn't the um, capacity to do that. The resources aren't there. When I started at the bar, the first mobile telephone I had was on Nokia. And I remember phone reports that were, that were generated in the 90s when Nokia mobile telephones were commonly being used and the phone reports would run to 20 or 30 pages. It would be the last 10 phone numbers that had been dialed and the last 10 text messages that had been sent or received. So that was easy. But yes, now when you're talking about thousands and hundreds of thousands and potentially millions of pages, it's just not realistic for it to be reviewed. So we're, we're now in a situation where there are 
what are called disclosure management documents being created by the prosecution, which is effectively a way of trying to engage with the defence to work out what are the lines of inquiry that we should be carrying out in relation to this phone to try to get to the material that might be of relevance to either side. So it involves greater engagement between the parties, cooperation, if you like, between the prosecution and the defence, to ensure that we can get to the material that either side may need um, without causing huge man-hours being involved and without causing the invasion of the privacy of any third parties. I know that another issue that you're very exercised about is the fact that um, the big trials of uh, fraud that uh, used to take place seem to have come to an end and I think that's probably as a result of uh, a number of failures uh, with the Serious Fraud Office. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Well, historically there have been a number of cases brought by the Serious Fraud Office that, that have been unsuccessful and very recently we've seen the Serious Fraud Office um, bringing to an end a number of investigations that have been running some time. For example, the investigation into Rolls-Royce, the investigating re investigation relating to the pharmaceuticals company and then there was the investigation, there was a big um, corruption investigation that was called to a halt as well. And the, the reality is, is that very, very, very substantial fraud trials cost the taxpayer an enormous amount of money. They cost an enormous amount of money to investigate. They cost an enormous amount of money to prosecute. The trials can be extremely long, extremely complex, and the overall cost of the taxpayer can be vast. And at the end of it, there may be a conviction, there may not be a conviction. And of course, if there isn't a conviction, the question is, well, all of this money has been spent. Was it worth it? And with the increase in technology and cryptocurrency and so on, fraud is, is still a very big problem and an increasing international problem. And the trend that we're seeing at the moment is for governments and investigators to place more of an emphasis rather on the actual fraudsters themselves or those who are suspected to be the fraudsters, but putting the focus on the proceeds of the fraud. So putting the focus on the assets, because all fraud is about generating money, and that money has to be stored and it has to be moved. And it's either stored in bank accounts or it's stored because it's converted into different types of assets. And it might be moved through bank accounts or the assets might be moved or you might have physical assets like houses. And the trend at the moment is to go after the assets and simply to say, well, we will freeze those assets. We will take control of those assets as an investigator. Um, and we will then place the obligation on the person who owns the assets to demonstrate that those assets are have been acquired legitimately. So if you've got lots and lots of houses and it doesn't really seem that you can afford to have lots of houses, you can have what's called an unexplained wealth order, which effectively allows the state to take control of the houses and then say to the owner, right, we can't see that you can afford to have all of these houses. You demonstrate to us that these have been acquired legitimately. And if they can't be demonstrated to be acquired legitimately, then the state can take the assets. And it's the same with bank accounts. You go after the bank accounts, freeze the bank accounts, company accounts, individual accounts, and say, we think that the assets in this account, we think the money in this account is a result of criminal activity. You demonstrate that it's not the result of criminal activity, and if you're able to do that, then we'll let you have it back. But if you can't do that, then in certain circumstances, the money can be taken. So it's in targeting the assets that way, it's a much, much cheaper, a much, much quicker, and a much more streamlined way of disrupting and de-incentivising fraud uh, rather than having great big fraud trials that cost um, huge, huge amounts of money. So that's, that's a big trend that we're, we're seeing and is continuing to develop. Not good for your profession, then. 
Well, no, because you could have a situation that uh, under a, a traditional fraud trial system could result in a, in, in a number of different allegations being brought of different types of criminal activity uh, and different people being tried for different things. And now simply you might have somebody just going along and saying, well, we know where the proceeds all ended up. It's in this bank account. So let's just freeze the account and say, OK, tell us that it's genuine. Because ultimately that, that's why fraud is committed. It's committed for profit. You take the profits away, you take away the reason to commit the fraud in the first place. A lot of drug money floating around, presumably, and that would be caught up in all this. Well, there's money from all sorts of criminal activity, all, all sorts of criminal activity. Obviously, there, there, there's, there's drug money, there is, um, there is all sorts of illegal gambling or prostitution or, or just the proceeds of different types of tax fraud or trading fraud, uh, mortgage fraud. Um, the banks is another example where the obligations are increasing on the banks to regulate their customers to ensure that their accounts aren't being used for fraudulent activity. It's almost a way of offloading the responsibility um, to, to, to investigate fr from the state to the banks themselves and say, well, you're big, very, very well-resourced institutions. You make sure your accounts aren't being used for fraudulent activity or you're going to be in trouble for it. And so they're passing it down the line in that way, and it's another effective way of, of ensuring that the pressure is kept up in, in, in relation to um, the proceeds of fraud, but at less financial cost to the state. And do you think that will work? It seems to be working. It's, it's still some of the unexplained wealth orders are very much in their infancy. They're, they're a very new thing. But certainly in terms of the freezing of bank accounts, from what I'm aware of so far, that the Accounts are being successfully frozen, and it seems to be causing. It seems to be placing people in situations where there are difficulties in terms of demonstrating that the funds are are legitimate. Not always the case, of course. Sometimes people are able to say, "Well, actually, yes, it is. It is legitimate." In those circumstances, the money's just handed back. But um, it may be too early to say to what extent it's it's it, it, it's going to work because some of these orders are very much, as I say, in their infancy. But I anticipate that it will have a, a, a productive effect. Looking at another issue which has uh, caused some stirring in Welsh legal quarters uh, on both sides of the argument, there is a strong uh, move on the part of some people in the legal profession and some politicians as well to create a separate legal jurisdiction for Wales. And there are people who are against it as well. And in fact, currently there is a um, law commission uh, review going on under the chairmanship of. Uh, Lord Thomas of Cumbia, the former Lord Chief Justice. What's your perspective on this, uh, Mark? Well, I, I know that the Law Commission are looking at this, or the Law Commission in Wales are looking at this at the moment. I think one of the main concerns that I would have about it is that if you're going to separate off the, the jurisdiction in Wales and effectively allow the jurisdiction in Wales to legislate and to create a, a new set of laws in relation to taking, for, for example, the, the criminal law and so on and having having separate procedural rules and separate um, criminal um, legislation. It seems to me that that is in circumstances where we are already in a country that is very, very, very stretched financially and that's having a, a very significant effect on the criminal justice system. It seems to me that that's just something that is going to be enormously uh, expensive and is going to potentially cause a degree of disruption to the way that we operate in times when perhaps we might be better focused on spending the resources on the more immediate problems that we have in relation to housing and in relation to social care and in relation to mental health and so on. 
But I know that some people very, feel very strongly about it, and I think I'm probably minded to wait and see what the Law Commission in Wales says. But my principal concern is whether there would be massive disruption and whether it would end up costing the taxpayer, who fundamentally is going to foot the bill, it seems to me, um, a very, very significant amount of money. Of course, new laws is always good for lawyers, because every time there's new laws, and those laws have to be looked at, and potentially they have to be the subject of a of appeals to the Court of Appeal to decide what they mean. So new laws tend to generate um, work for lawyers, but I'm not sure in these circumstances the extent of the benefit to the public. But I'll wait and see what the Law Commission says. Of course, the uh, National Assembly does have the ability to make its own laws now, and while criminal law is not in itself devolved, there are certain elements of it which would come under other headings which would enable the Assembly to um, create new criminal offences, essentially. The one that's very current is the issue relating to the removal of the defence parents have when they are beating their children. Uh, so there's quite a controversy on at the moment where the Assembly is proposing to um, characterise by those who are opposed to the move as ending, or, or as rather introducing a smacking ban, in fact, in legal terms, what's happening is it withdraws the defence of reasonable, reasonable chastisement. Reasonable chastisement. So you could have a situation, if there is not a separate jurisdiction, where you had one court system that was responsible for running criminal cases, and of course in one part of it, in England, uh, where there would not be a smacking ban, it would be more difficult to prosecute uh, people. I mean, obviously, it would have to be um, a, a higher level of, uh, of assault uh, before any criminal charges were brought. But if this act goes through, you know, this bill goes through and becomes an act in Wales, then you would have the same court prosecuting parents for hitting their children in a way that they couldn't be prosecuted if they were in England. Well, once you devolve legislative powers in this way, it's an inevitable consequence that you're going to have a situation, potentially, where you will have legislation that says one thing one side of the border and legislation that says another thing the other side of the border, and that exists on the border between France and Germany just as it does exist between the border between Wales and England. And so I think that that's just an inevitable consequence of legislative devolution, but the the greater, the greater devolution that you have, the more, the more powers that you give in terms of legislation, the more that that's likely to occur. There are already significant legislative powers, as you've, as, as you've said, you've made the reference to the criminal law example, but there was a very, very substantial piece of legislation in Wales relating to social care, which I think is possibly, I may very well be wrong, but I suspect it's one of the largest acts that has come out of the, of the um, legislature here. And I went to a presentation in relation to that Act, the Social, I think it's the Social Care Wales Act. And it's anticipated from people in the know who spoke about it at the presentation I went to that it could take decades for this Act to bed down in terms of interpretation of the provisions, what they actually mean going to the Court of Appeal through different cases that take place, and the Court of Appeal giving answers as to what the different provisions mean or what happens in certain circumstances, it could take decades for it to bed down. And again, that's, that's an indication of when you have substantial new law or a substantial new law as a result of a, of a devolved jurisdiction as to how long it actually takes to work its way through the system to be understood. It takes time and costs money. I recently read The Secret Barrister book, which uh, is written by anonymous barrister 
who works in the criminal field and who is exposing uh, serious concerns about the way in which the justice system operates and they talk about um, big cuts that are going on, they talk about a, a justice system that um, isn't uh, just creaking but falling apart. What's your perspective on the kind of critique that's offered in that book? I do follow The Secret Barrister on Twitter and um, I'm, I'm from personal experience aware of all of the difficulties that are taking place in the criminal justice system. There has been significant significant underfunding um, of the system for uh, a very, very long period of time and there's no doubt that it's under a, a great deal of strain. You're probably aware that the criminal barristers recently were on the verge of taking action in relation to some of the fees that are paid in relation to criminal work. There are under the, under the scheme that exists for the prosecution fees, there are instances where barristers can go to court and do complex hearings for a fee of £46.50. And, and when you give that figure over, sometimes people simply don't believe that that can be right. But it, but it is right, £46.50. And, and when you take out the percentage that the barrister has to pay in overheads to their chambers and travel expenses and so on, you can often find that the barrister has actually ended up losing money in going to court on a hearing. So there are, there are huge problems um, with the system. That It is down to money. It's not just to do with fees for the barristers, although that's been in the news recently. It's to do with funding the whole system from top to bottom. It's things as simple as the fabric of the courtrooms themselves. You'll go to court buildings in London and you'll see toilets that are in a terrible state. You'll see lifts that are out of order for long periods of time. The, the, the lifts at the Old Bailey were out of order for a long period of time recently. It's quite a big building. There's quite a few floors to it. So the whole system has been creaking for, for all sorts of reasons. And we know that money is tight in all, all, all areas of um, life that, that are reliant on public funding to, to keep going, hospitals and, and so on. And, and, and everybody is suffering as a result. But in terms of the criminal justice system, I think that often it's an easy target for the government because everybody, everybody needs a doctor. Everybody wants the NHS to have money because everybody day-to-day -day needs a doctor, but not necessarily everybody thinks that they're going to need a criminal lawyer. And so from a public point of view, it's um, easy for the government to put the criminal justice system at the back because it, it may not be something that is um, necessarily of immediate concern to the average person in the street. But when the average person in the street then does find themselves one reason or another, either they or an immediate member of their family in contact with the criminal justice system, sometimes they're quite shocked by what they see because it is in a bit of a state. But the good news is that some progress has been made as a result of lots of campaigning that's been going on and I'm hoping that as time progresses we'll see more and more investment coming forward and we'll be able to make up some of the losses that have taken place and see some improvements. There are also some serious concerns about uh, cuts to legal aid, both in um, criminal and uh, civil law, aren't there? I mean, are you at all concerned that the cuts in legal aid that have taken place could lead to um, failure in justice for certain people? There's a, there's a problem with legal aid in, in, in criminal work in the sense that the cuts have got to a point where some solicitors simply don't feel that it is cost-effective for them to do legal aid cases, and so more and more solicitors are moving into doing private work or private-only work. And in certain areas of the country, the less urban areas, if you like, the more, the more rural areas of the country where there are fewer firms around, there are areas that are being referred to as legal aid black spots, effectively, where there is simply no coverage, where if somebody is arrested and goes to the police station, they 
They don't have the resources to pay privately for a lawyer, which of course many people don't, and they need to rely on the legal aid system. There is simply nobody there to deal with it, and so they have to wait and try and get people in from further further afield. That causes delay and so on. And it also makes it very difficult for lawyers that are acting under the legal aid system because of the, the level of the fees to dedicate the amount of time that they might like to dedicate to each individual case, and that puts them under pressure. And so that's the problem. But as I say, there's a lot of campaigning going on, there's a lot of pressure being applied, and we are making some small gains at the moment, and we're hoping that in the future that there'll be more investment. The government have certainly indicated a desire to engage with and a desire to understand the issues and a desire to try and put more funding in, but we'll have to wait and see whether that actually happens and to what extent it happens. Mark Cotter, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week. Mm-hmm.